I have to be delusional enough to think people are going to listen to this. It's thunderstorming outside. There's lightning. Hit me with it. Come on. How smart can you be when you have huge mantids? Okay, he, him. Go put your pronouns and go sit in the corner. I'll take care of this. It's just common sense. Good morning, Octopod. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Commoner. Thank you so much for coming. Really excited for this one. I'm sure everyone listening knows who you are, but really quickly, could you just give a brief overview of your background and what you talk about on Twitter? Sure. So I joined the jungle during COVID. Yeah, right after the lockdowns. I had seen Wall Street Playboys for a while on a different Twitter account. And then when they made the jungle, I just jumped in. At that time, I was a professional chef that had owned restaurants, um, come up in everything from fine dining to Italian to smoke and fire to, um, yeah, I just kind of ran the gamut um, as far as what my training was. And so I started a Twitter account all about um, fine cooking and learning how to cook better and learning why cooking at home is really important. Um, and that uh, brought me to launching an e-commerce brand um, that I'm slowly building and a Substack that's all about cooking. There's over 250 recipes on the Substack now, not even including all the essays about different techniques and stuff. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, that's that brings us to now. Absolutely. And so was COVID influential and in why you're no longer running those restaurants or what was the decision there to, to change gears? Yeah, so I had I had closed two restaurants uh, bef- right before lockdowns, I was actually going to relocate across the world. I was tired of being in ownership. I just wanted, I had some connections with some, with some really great chefs who I'd cooked with before. And, uh, the idea of not managing people and not dealing with ownership P and L, um, mm-hmm. stuff on a small scale, uh, was, and also I love to travel. So I was going to relocate halfway around the world and then lockdowns happened. And so, um, I did a few pop-ups and then decided that I could see the writing on the wall and Bowtie Bull was talking a lot about, you know, a lot of macro things that were going to happen with the economy. And just from my background, I could see this was going to be a nightmare for restaurants. And so that point uh, was where COVID really changed my life and the fact that I decided I wasn't going to pursue any more brick and mortar operations and just go full into having multiple streams of income and starting some Wi-Fi businesses and just grinding it out. Absolutely. And would you say that the restaurant business will never return to what it was prior to COVID? Or do you think it could, in a couple of years, resemble what it used to? I think the restaurant industry in general tends to go through cycles. I think when you have a black swan event like COVID, it probably just, it just kind of exaggerates that more. Um, But, you know, if you, if you look back, into like the time of Escoffier when there were, you know, 50 cooks and, um, you know, serving all these grand meals. And then, you know, fast forward decades later when Alice Waters out in California was starting simple cuisine, just based entirely on pristine products and and Mm -hmm. minimal manipulation. Um, You know, there's, that's just one example of, of, and then, you know, you had the whole Nordic fine dining explosion, you know, with Rene Redzepi, which happened after the whole uh, molecular gastronomy uh, evolution um, with Ferran Adria in Spain. So there's these cycles, I think, that happen. I think what COVID is going to show a lot of people or anyone that's looking is that the restaurant system, at least the Western restaurant system, um, is is problematic in a lot of areas, mainly labor and payroll. The the margins are just so low for most restaurants that what you're left with, um, there's you, you end up having to sacrifice, do I want quality ingredients or do I want to pay above average, you know, living wage? And so uh, it's a real conundrum, especially if you're an ingredient or, you know, product driven chef that's all about like quality. Um, you know, back in the day, you know, I went and worked for a lot of great chefs for free just because I wanted to learn. And mm. I think now, I think it's illegal now to actually do that. I think the the labor department finally said you're not allowed to go. They would call it staging. I don't think you're allowed to do that anymore. People don't want to pay 
a lot for ingredients, but they want amazing meals. And, you know, th they've even tried this out in, you know, California where they put these like labor or these like, I don't know if they're value added tax or. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Living wage or, name. yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's only so many people that are willing to pay that, you know, increase. And so, you know, over time, um, you know, those restaurants end up fading away for the most part. And so I think what you're going to see now is, you know, a lot more machine running of, you know, fast food restaurants, you know, they're mm -hmm. decreased labor, they're trying to increase efficiency. And then there was a big article, if you're in culinary a, a week or two ago about Renee Redzepi closing Noma, um, because he was saying it wasn't a sustainable model. Um, and, you know, Noma is a place where, you know, you're looking at you know, 60 to 80 cooks and, you know, research and development kitchens. And, you know, a lot of those people would go and work for free for months. And um, th th he's not shutting the restaurant completely. What he's turning it into is like a think tank, an experimental place to explore culinary ideas. And then they'll do pop-ups occasionally. Mm. Um, so that's definitely, a, you know, a model that's changing now um, from, like I said earlier, where you'd have you know, 30, 40, 50 cooks that would travel halfway across the world to work with this amazing chef. And they, you know, give up three, three to six months of their life because they wanted to learn from the best. And now that's just really frowned upon um, a lot. So my experience with fine dining is watching Top Chef, to be completely honest, and the couple of restaurants I've been to in the city, but not at the caliber I think you're describing. But just for everyone listening, let's say I go to a restaurant and I buy a $35 entree. On average, what is the margin on that $35 entree, for instance? It it will depend, but you don't, for a restaurant in general, you don't want to run more than a 30% food cost. Mm. Um, so if you're, that that would probably cost $12, you know, if it's 35, I'm just doing some quick right, rounding, right. but. Um, so that, that, that would cost $12 places like, you know, fast food, high volume places. Um, they try and go for even, you know, lower margins where you're looking at like 20%, 18%, um, because they're serving a lower priced item, but they're factoring in volume. And so they need, they need more of a, uh, gross, um, taken off that margin, Mm -hmm. then you know, you'll see a lot of places and i i even did this with like high-end high-end beef high-end proteins where you know if you're charging 150 dollars for a porterhouse that's dry aged for 48 days or something you may be able to do a 50 percent margin on that a 50 percent cost on that because you're getting 75 dollars right away so but in general you, you don't want to be above a 30 percent food cost got it got it i have noticed by going to restaurants in the city that if you're in that 20 to $30 range, it's really mediocre food. Most of the time you have to get over the $30 entree. And again, you're talking about a different caliber, but just for someone who's going out to dinner once or twice a week, like if you're below $30, you can make this dish probably better at home. And I don't think that was the case five or six years ago. So I do think there's inflation, of course, that they're suffering from, and it really affects the restaurant owners when the the inputs are so expensive, if they're trying to get a 30% food cost, every cent of input is tripled essentially on the price then. Yeah, it's gotten really bad the last few years, uh, but I, you're 100% correct. The biggest issue is that the quality has gone down so much uh, in ingredients. And, you know, the mid-tier places are the ones that suffer the most because they're trying to get people in, but you know, they're not targeting the fine dining crowd, but they also, they have to, they're going to be running a higher food cost and probably a higher labor cost. And there's probably been, I don't think a, a harder time to find qualified trained cooking talent um, than there is right now. And despite all of the, you know, culinary schools that popped up and charged people, you know, $80,000 to teach them how to be a $13 line cook. It was just kind of crazy mm -hmm. um, that that, was happening um but yeah the, the mid the mid-tier restaurants are the ones that get squeezed the most because they're getting squeezed on both sides right exactly exactly so you mentioned culinary schools what is the typical process to become a chef in one of these elite restaurants 
So there's there's multiple ways to do this. What I what I always tell people is that cooking and you know cooking as we know it um, as it evolved into being something more prestigious. It started as an apprenticeship. So you would go and live with you know if you're in France you you live with the restaurant owner above his restaurant, and he gives you room and board and you get your meals and in exchange like you work for him and while you're working for him he like teaches you how to cook. And it's a very hands-on um, process of learning. You know, you can't just do something once and then say, oh, I know how to do this, or I've mastered this. There's so many variables in cooking, um, temperature changes, ingredient changes. You know, if you're, you know, a, a squash in the winter is going to be different than a squash in the summer. They're going to have mm -hmm. different moisture contents. The cooking process is different. Um, so there's all these things that you can't just like stare at a book and read versus other vocations where it's very much, you know, book driven. Um, I think, you know, culinary schools decided, well, we can monetize this like most of higher education and we can charge people a lot of money and find a way to make this prestigious and um, and do pretty well for ourselves. I'm not saying culinary schools are evil or anything. I'm just saying that the what you what you pay to learn uh, doesn't doesn't really prepare you for actually being a line cook or a chef in a restaurant um being in a in a cooking classroom where you've got all this room around you and um you know you're being taught one on you know by a professor in front of you and then you take a test you know um that's different than being in a restaurant and you're five tickets deep and you're having to do eight different things at a time and you know you've got um 60 quart vats of veal stock that you're having to strain out while you're trying to bang out you know all these other orders during a service uh, it's just it's not a classroom environment at all <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah yeah the only way to really learn is trial by fire being put in that scenario how many years do you need to be a line cook typically before you become the head chef I've always wondered that so I thought you started as like a dishwasher then you became the line cook then maybe you become a manager and then slowly you work your way up is that a correct understanding of the process? It's probably the best way to do it. Um, one of my first jobs as a teenager was washing dishes at an Italian restaurant. And I think everyone should either be a server or a dishwasher um, for at least three to six months of their life just to understand, um, you know, what the hospitality industry is like. Mm -hmm. uh, I think people, I think guests in restaurants would be a lot friendlier and more understanding if they were to do that. Um I, I started late. A lot of people start cooking early. I had already, I graduated college. I had a bachelor of science and then I got into cooking. So mm. I started um, from the ground up. And in my case, I just had a real knack for it. Um, I grew up in a house where cooking was normal. Um, my mom made me cook quite a bit. Um, I was quite a mischievous child and at a young age, she decided to keep me out of trouble in the afternoons. I was going to bake bread every day <laughs> to keep me busy. So that was um, that was my intro into baking. And when you're younger and you're like, oh, I can, oh, I get to punch the dough. This is cool. Um, mm -hmm. Those kind of things kind of stick with you. Um, but then when, you know, doing that in a home environment versus a professional environment, it's a lot different. So I got in and, and had a real knack for it. And so, um, yeah, I started at the bottom stations and basically... I felt so behind from everyone else. And, you know, a lot of these people had been to culinary school and then mm -hmm. uh, it just became kind of an obsession for me. Um, this was before that, this was before like YouTube and all these blogs. There was like maybe a few blogs online, um, nothing close to what we have now. So you were either um, sourcing ingredients as well. Like you couldn't just hop on Amazon and, and order something. It, what the selection just wasn't near um, what it is now. And um, so, yeah, I, I got into um, a good kitchen, worked my way up, uh, maxed my way out pretty quickly where they weren't going to move me up more just because of some seniority things. Mm -hmm. So I went to uh, a guy who had a really great national reputation, offered to work for free. I started out wiping plates and um, and then got onto some stations and it was such a small place that I was able to absorb a lot and then helped him open up other places. And let's see, within, 
was eight years of being a line cook and um yeah so being between being a line cook and then i worked my way up into some management positions so i was a Mm -hmm. sous chef and then when whenever i had vacation i would go travel and work for free with these other chefs that he knew of um and then you know come back and just cook more and then after eight years was when i had opened opened my first restaurant on my own crazy it's just so interesting to me and you talk about this guy that you ended up so you went off and you started a restaurant with him too or you were just working closely with him at that original restaurant he opened up some other ones okay and so because i was with him i was ended up having some management opportunities because he knew he could trust me and I knew how he wanted things done. And and so um, that's a good position to be in if you're with someone that wants to grow and um, uh, then they already have this sort of innate trust or more trust in you than someone coming in off the street. Right, right, right. The, the development of like the menu at these top tier restaurants, I find that really interesting the restaurant owner, who is not often the chef, I'm not sure maybe the chef is the owner, um, they decide they want to have a Mediterranean restaurant or they want to have the overall concept, then how do you design the menu? Yeah, so depending on depending on how deep the, the management structure goes, your executive chef would, would be the menu writer. And then underneath the executive chef, you'd have the chef de cuisine, um and this would be the chef then that would make specials um that's on the line running the the pass every day um and really because they're going to have more of a handle on you know what needs to be used up um they would be the ones doing more of the specials and then mm-hmm. collaborating with the executive chef on on menu ideas um but it just it really depends on the concept a lot of restaurants they don't change their menu at all it's you know you go in in March or you go in November, it's the same menu and maybe they've changed the dessert or they've changed, you know, maybe there's a a different special, but um, a lot of restaurants run like that. And it's because if you're constantly changing, you're constantly having to retrain people, you're constantly Mm -hmm. having to um, adjust, you know, for different costs that come up by changing your dishes. So it's not really a convenient way to run a business, but it's where if someone who's really interested in cooking is in charge um i my first restaurant i changed the menu 10 times in the first year um and it was i loved it it, but it was stressful and a nightmare for for a lot of other people (laughs) (laughs) i have never considered that the all the retraining we hear about in my econ classes like menu cost of changing the actual menus for all of your items if you change the prices or if you change what's on the menu so you have to print new menus it's like this theoretical thing about inflation but having to retrain people resource your ingredients like changing the menu is very taxing yep extremely yeah after i did 10 in the first year i just went to four because uh, then you can just change with the seasons mm-hmm, and then it mm-hmm. still gives you flexibility um I, I always, because, because I didn't go to culinary school, I always felt that I wanted my cooks to learn as much from me as they could. So I'd bring in specialty ingredients that they wouldn't get to work with anywhere else. And, you know, whether that was like partridge from Scotland or foie gras or truffles or, um, you know, different, you know, sort of exotic seafoods that you normally can't get your hands on. I would bring those in and just so we could run them as specials um, because, you know, that's, that's how you learn. Mm-hmm. Um, if you never get to handle those products, you never really can appreciate them, what they're for. Um, and, you know, in some cases it, it helped with a few people, uh, other people didn't really care. So you find that out pretty quick. So we mentioned previously that the quality of ingredients is what's really declining and putting a lot of pressure on these restaurants. So can you give a little insight into why you think that's happening and what kind of ingredients, everything? Um, this is a, uh, this is a slippery slope, uh, mm-hmm. at least for me, because there's a lot of people that just get really extreme. And this is why I probably don't do so well on Twitter. Um, you know, because, uh, you know, you've got the only organic, only grass fed, only, you know, this or never this, like, you know, the, the people that are like, um, uh, oh my gosh, never use a nonstick pan, you're gonna die. Um, and then they're, you know, 
they're probably got some heavy metal intake because they haven't seasoned their cast iron pan properly, you know? After having spent a lot of time in Europe uh, versus in, in the U.S., I can tell you that the, the problem is that so many, um, so much produce and so many crops have been subsidized that the U.S. consumer doesn't have an accurate idea of what ingredients should cost. Mm. Um, so if you go over... Say you say you go over to the UK or you you know you go over to France or um you're gonna be paying more in general for meat per pound um than we here in the US pay for. And so like people get sticker shock. I've I've taken people over, especially when I was traveling for cooking, I'd take cooks with me and stuff and they'd just look at prices and be like, Oh my gosh. And I'm like, Yeah, that's because you know things have been so heavily subsidized in the U S that the consumer's just been spoiled on what this actually costs. Mm. So that's one, that's one issue. Um, I think, you know, with COVID and you have all these supply chain disruptions and just the pricing in the commodities markets um, when there was this, you know, huge run on beef uh, mm -hmm. probably five years ago where beef costs were just skyrocketing. Um and then, you know, then you see like a a dip in demand for, for, um, or a dip in, uh, in pricing for pork. Um, it's a pretty complex interweb of, of systems, some things you can easily do to try and get the best quality product. Um, Cause then you've got all these other people that don't want to buy foods that are like uh, carbon that have a carbon footprint. And, mm -hmm. you know, the easiest thing you can do is you can eat with the seasons. So just eat. Every every three months, you can change, you can change the produce, and in many cases, a lot of the proteins you're eating by what's in season. And so that's four times a year you get to um, basically change your menu at home on what you're eating. And that's a that's a really easy way to um, to eat smarter. Mm -hmm. um, sure, you're not gonna be able to tell in the grocery store where all this stuff's coming from, but it's it's a good start. It's a good place to be aware. Um, if you want to go all organic and you can like afford that, that's fine. I think there's, uh, there's a lot of organic that's purely marketing and not very substantive. Um, and there's, you know, also, um, issues with properties that are organic and then, well, they're fenced up against people that aren't organic. So are you actually still getting, you know, pesticides or, um, it's, it becomes a, uh, it's it's not a cut and dry sort of situation. So, um, or if, but if you want to do organic, you know, one hundred percent, that's fine. Um, I do think that if you have access to raw milk, um, that is an industry that's been just totally bullied um, by big ag. So much fear mongering about raw milk and how you're going to die. And um, you know, if you just go go to France and look at all of their raw milks, raw creams, raw cheeses that they eat just probably dozens of pounds a year of delicious dairy. Um, and uh, if you've got a raw milk source near you, I would definitely say tap into that. If you've got farmer's markets, that's great. Just make sure your farmer's market is certified by some sort of, or is, is uh, site checked because there's a lot of farmer's markets that have been discovered they just go down to the produce terminal, pick up what everyone else is buying, and then go sell it in a market and say that they grew it. So um, I don't know if that answers your question, um, but. <laughs> totally, totally. That was a very thorough answer. I had no idea about the farmer's markets that people were doing that. What a great arbitrage, but I'm glad that there's a way to to find out if it's certified or not. I've always had a thought that organic is just kind of a scam. Like, Throughout the entire supply chain process, you can promise that this banana was not touched by any pesticides, any modern technologies that I don't want it to. Like, it's just so difficult to wrap your head around. Um, you also mentioned something about lower carbon footprint for some foods, and that's really trendy right now. So I'd love to hear your take on something like red meat. Is red meat as bad for the environment as people are saying it is? And should I care? <laughs> I, I mean, I've I've done a minimum amount of research on this because to me it's been so obviously agenda driven for decades now, since you know Oprah went after the cattle farmers or something, right? Um, 
and also, you know, the whole mad cow disease scare that is is largely um, blown way out of proportion, um, and and the amount of fear that um, it's it's so funny how uh, government loves to use fear, whether it's about um, ingredients or stuff in the air. Or, but yeah, fear is a great deterrent for people. I I think personally um, that from the research I've seen, I, I think that this is is totally totally overblown. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that livestock and agriculture um, will remain a, a an essential part of any healthy society. The nutrient benefits of, um, you know, red meat, um, you know, uh, as, a, as a source of, you know, essential vitamins and uh, minerals and nutrients, there's just no, there's no way um, that you can discount that. Now, you know, if you've got um, if you've got some oat milk vegan that wants to come out and say for every one cow, you know, I, it just, it, it just becomes so circular and, right. um, uh, people, people get so extreme in their own cognitive dissonance that they just, well, what does common sense say is our, is, is the livestock and our agricultural system perfect? No, not, not at all. Um, is the answer to, I mean, do what with the cows? I mean, what if, I mean, we're not going to eat beef, then, then what? I just think a lot of this is, is laughably illogical. And, um, uh, one of my best friends from the industry is, um, is a, uh, a butcher out in California is his daughter is the third generation butcher. They, they select and dry age some of the best dry aged beef I've ever had in my life that top Michelin chefs around the country get from them whenever they can. And they are amazing people. They know more about beef and cows than I ever will. And I I love learning from them. And so that's another part, you know, of um, what I loved about cooking and running my own restaurant was I could be in contact with with the purveyors and with the farmers and with the people raising or sourcing the, the different livestock I was using. Totally, totally. And I think um, I did, I was very concerned about factory farming and I still am because I, I do think it's inhumane the way the animals are treated. And I wish there was a way to mitigate that problem as much as possible. Like I am willing to pay a premium for beef for the animals to be treated better. And I think a lot of people are. Um, I wasn't aware that there are places where the animals are treated better. So I actually have a friend from college that has a family cattle farm. I won't say where, but she's like, our our cattle, we treat them very well. Like they have good lives. And I'm like, well, where can I buy your beef? And she's like, I don't even know where it ends up in which stores and stuff like that. But there are places where the animals are treated better. So from someone like me who who doesn't want to support factory farming, but also is shopping at a grocery store in the middle of a city, like, is there anything I can do to try to fight against that a little bit with my dollars? I mean, I would say maybe I need to write something about this. I mean, there's there's been a lot of shock media um, about factory farming. Yes, there's there's definitely like, like, again, and this is where nuance comes in. I'm not saying anything... I'm not saying that the system we have is perfect at all, but the last, I I talked to an agriculture professor about this a few years ago um, when I was starting to get into the difference of, well, what's humanely raised as a label. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it will, it's mainly just marketing. I mean, uh, you know, all, what does all natural mean versus never ever. Um, So I talked to this agriculture professor um who's who's a meat scientist that um uh I got in touch with him actually a long time ago because I was trying to learn about dry aging and he said if you look at like the biggest producers of beef so he said like in Texas 80% of the beef um that's farmed or that's that goes through these what they call feedlots or whatever mm-hmm. 80% of that beef comes from small independent farms mm-hmm. the beef goes to auction they're raised on grass. They go up to the feedlots. They're finished on on grain. That they're there for you know a little while, and then and then they're processed. That's a much different story than what you hear from a lot of these um, anti factory farming people. Mm-hmm. Um, so like I had no clue that eighty percent of all of the beef from Texas that goes to fact that goes to 
these processing plants or you know feedlots they come from independent it's it's from mom and pops raising you know five or ten cows or you know 20 cows at a time and then you know once a year you know power 18 months or whatever it is then they go to auction and they sell them off so i'm sure you know someone would come on and tell me well but then you know the feed matters and yeah i'm sure yeah i'm sure you know there's there's i'm sure there's ways we can improve things but the um I think a, a lot of the in the um, a lot of the anti factory farming stuff is is a lot of shock, um, but you know there could be improvements made for sure. Yeah, I I think I would agree with that assessment from the little that I understand. And the part about the marketing, it's so true. When you go to a grocery store, and I'm trying to buy eggs, if I'm lucky enough to find a grocery store with eggs right now, but there's cage-free, there's free-range, there's all-natural, there's organic, like there's six different labels. And the difference in the the life of the chicken is six inches, probably, of space. The, The regulations attached to those words are so just driven by marketing purposes, not for actually improving the life of the chicken. So the response from the factory farmer activists is that we should stop eating red meat or any meat even. So there's this thing of fake meat, beyond meat, all this crap chemicals that they're calling meat. Are you long or short the the fake meat industry? What do you think is going to happen? I'm short it long-term. Um, I mean, think think about it this way. Uh, remember when when everyone was told butter is killing you, you you should not eat butter, and uh, it's giving you uh, high cholesterol, and and it's the leading cause of heart attacks or whatever that whole campaign that ran for decades was, mm-hmm. and you need to eat margarine instead. Well, then you know, of course, we found out. Well, actually, margarine's like way worse right. for you than butter. And so now when you go into the store, I'm sure there's still some margarine around, but primarily what I'm seeing is butter. <laughs> so, <laughs> unless the world just goes complete clown, um, I would think, you know, in a, in a decade or two, this whole fake meat thing is going to be primarily blown over. Um, it is fascinating to me that people that don't want to eat meat want to eat things that look like meat, which right. I think is just totally bizarre. Um but yeah, I, I am I am extremely short. I um I I'm not eating it. I I don't have any interest in it. I I'm totally short it too for the exact reason that you uh, just described. Like, what percentage of people who do not eat meat want to eat something that resembles meat? Like, if you want to eat vegetables, eat a salad. Like, why does it need to produce fake blood? And it's just really kind of creepy. Um, do you think? in the next, or even right now, in the next few years right now, that fine dining would incorporate any of this fake meat because it's trending? Well, there's, I don't know if they'll incorporate the fake meat that's like being processed. I wouldn't be surprised if they start trying to make their own though. A really interesting story was uh, 11 Madison Park, which was named, you know, the top restaurant in the world on the San Pellegrino top list. They got it a few times and Daniel Hum, uh, really talented, Swiss chef that is uh, extremely creative, creates some of the most aesthetically pleasing technique driven food um, that, you know, I've ever uh, had and enjoyed. They went, I think it's been two years now, or maybe it's just been about a year. Um, They decided to go 100% plant-based vegan. And, you know, so far um, it's mainly been scathing reviews on why am I paying $500 for some vegetables if you're having 15 courses or whatever 15 bites or whatever mm-hmm. and if four of them taste weird and that they're not pleasing uh then you know wh- like why why is the experiment seems to be failing for the most part and to me the the that would be such a niche audience that i mean i think that'd be extremely difficult but I think he's also getting uh, sponsorship from like American Express and some other big mm. companies that have really deep pockets that are like definitely virtue signaling on that. Mm, that's super fascinating. So some of these restaurants are like driving culture or the big companies think that they are in some way. That's that's fascinating. Especially you see that with fine dining, which is kind of why I'm so glad to be out of it. Um, the amount of virtue signaling that goes on in, in the fine dining or just in the pop culture chefs now is um is is just 
just so one-sided and just so too much. And, you know, I've had friends that got their, got their businesses blackballed because they expressed a political opinion that, you know, wasn't popular. And, Mm. and then basically you got people with hundreds of thousands of followers saying, don't go to this business. Well, like you're going to destroy someone's livelihood. So I'm, yeah, I'm definitely glad I'm not, um, I don't miss that part of the industry at all. Yeah. And I noticed that a lot of the fine dining restaurants were some of the biggest proponents of like vaccine mandates and to this day even. Yep. Yep. <laughs> it's wild <laughs> to this day. 100% correct. I guess it's just because they are the elite of the elite if you can afford $500 for dinner. So that's their clientele who are all typically way, way, way to the left. So perhaps it's just, yeah. a, it's, do you think it's just um, trying to appeal to their customers as much as possible? Appealing to their customers, definitely. Because without naming specific groups, the far left is is so dominated by particular groups, which also tend to enjoy the finer things of life, while telling you that you should like give up things for other people. That uh, that's that is uh, very true of the kind of fine dining niche uh, in in the culinary world for sure. You never trust a fat communist, you know. It doesn't seem to work <laughs> out right. Um, so just changing gears a bit. So we're, we're escaping the fine dining realm for all the reasons that you've described. And now you're in the e-commerce biz. You're in the biz. So what are, um, I know you're selling these really fancy, cool knives with the little octopods on them. I think those are sick. Um, what are some of the problems you've experienced with starting an e-com brand, producing something like a knife I can imagine is very difficult especially with like regulations and then selling them I can imagine there's a lot of problems with that so can you just tell us a bit about what you've dealt with and what you've overcome when starting this business sure with the knife itself the reason so the only reason I launched the knife was because early in my career I got really into like artisan made knives and and Mm -hmm. the reason I did was I had just been used to regular like we'll just call it like uh Wusthof Henkel's you know knives or the like Victorinox um $30 jobs that you can you know pull off at you know Target or Walmart or Mm -hmm. whatever but then when I got into my first uh into my first fine dining kitchen and the chef was like okay you can use this like for a little bit but here's a knife that's relatively affordable back then so so I just basically took my half my paycheck because I wasn't getting paid hardly anything either (laughs) um, and went bought the knife and then I was like holy crap like this is like a whole new Mm. the whole new dimension uh and he was the first chef to explain to me how dull knives change the flavor of foods um especially vegetables since then I went down this huge rabbit hole of all these different like knife makers and found myself being really attracted to uh Japanese blade work um mainly because it's uh they tend to be a lighter blade um and uh, uh they tend to be much easier to work with and it feels like literally the knife is an extension of your arm and of your hand and so you know when you're doing a lot of cutting and slicing I don't want a 10 pound dumbbell on my hand like right. while I'm trying to like chop uh you know 20 onions or whatever uh, and then I end up meeting a uh, a Japanese um, trained bladesmith named uh, Murray Carter. And if you're ever, if you want, like th- he makes my favorite knives in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, for reference, I think um, back in the day, I got a long blade of his for, I want to say like $450 or something. And those knives are now easily over $1,700. Wow. Um, so he is the only non he's he's a, he's a white guy and he went over to Japan and studied under this family who had no heir to pass on their 18th century bladesmith um it, the, the Japanese are incredible uh that these these businesses that they start run for generations so there was this bladesmith and um so he officially like trained murray for i think it was like 10 or 15 years or something um and then officially passed down like formally passed down the family designation so he's like the 18th yashimoto that's so sick 
Yeah, so then Uri came back over to the to the U.S. and was in uh, Oregon for a while, and I think now he relocated to Wyoming. Um, but yeah, I've met Murray and um, I own many of his knives. And um, so this this is all part of my whole knife like obsession. And so then what I started seeing was like, I cook all these dinner parties for people. And I'm just like, man, these people, you're like your knives suck. Like, and there's no real, there's no real reason for that. And then I saw people buying mass advertised products that I just felt you're paying for the marketing and you're not really getting that great of a blade. So that's why I started the Octopod Blade. Um, and it is uh, it's Japanese made. The family's been making knives for 750 years. Um, and so I collaborate with them. Um, they make uh, they make the blades for me. Um, and they're they're so cool to basically let me just order from them um, as I need. So I'm not carrying huge inventory. Mm. Uh, I'm not having to carry like a thousand blades or whatever of inventory cost or anything. And so uh, I'm actually uh, working with a different knife maker now because um, I wanted to add a pairing knife to the lineup. So I finally found someone that I was, I was happy with pairing knives. I'm they're really um, the handle to blade ratio is really important. Um, and so I finally found a handle. Um, that I think most home cooks would really enjoy using and the length of the blades really good. So that's probably coming in a few weeks. Um, but yeah, so as far as the, the, the company that I'm working with, they, they made it really easily made it really easy for me. Um, primarily because, um, a guy that, um, that was, uh, he owns a big knife store that I met years ago. He basically is the one that, contacted all these people um that I do these knife collaborations with and if if he hadn't if I didn't have that connection it would have been a giant pain in the rear end so um it's it's not what you know it's who you know right right so we were talking a bit before we started recording about organic traffic is how you are getting the majority of your your traffic or your traction right now so is that just meaning people are finding your recipes and your tweets on twitter and that's converting into substack purchases and then eventually knife purchases for instance yep that's i'm doing like all organic um i've done some testing um but for now um i'm just focusing on the organic growth part of it um and just seeing you know seeing long term what's going to happen um the Twitter, it was it was nice when Twitter added that you can add your shop to your profile now, so people can see mm -hmm. the Octopod products on the on the profile. But yeah, for now, I'm I'm researching on um, running some ads, and also the best place to run those ads. Um, like we were talking, uh, as far as like social media platforms going, um, you know. I'm from what I'm seeing is I'm I'm going to be putting more um, effort into Pinterest because that's um, seems to be better for a lot of cooking content. That's been, it's been a, it's been a really big growth challenge because I mean, I, you know, until two years ago, I was just like a guy in a kitchen and mm -hmm. had no clue about Wi-Fi money, had no clue about like shipping or like product fulfillment or um, anything like that. And so Thankfully, you know, Bowtie Opossum, Bowtie Parrotfish, Bowtie Tetra have all been really helpful in um, not just the back end, but how you sell stuff. Um, mm -hmm. So Bowtie Sales Guy as well has been huge help because um, I'm not a natural salesperson. I had some really bad sales experiences. <laughs> me too, me too. <laughs> yeah, so I'm like, I'm like finally getting over asking people to like buy a product. Totally. You know, well, great. So <laughs> yeah. And well, the product speaks for itself, I think. So, and your wealth of experience justifies it entirely. But I, I totally get the um. Well, I don't really have a a wealth of experience or knowledge in anything, but I get the the concern about selling things as not being pushy or confrontational is not my strong suit. So I relate to that. Sure. And I think for the when you were asking about challenges with the ecom, I think as far as something that I really um figured out much later than I should have was as far as just the content on the Substack. 
writing for your audience and not, instead of writing for yourself was the biggest adjustment for me. And mm. there were like certain subsects I wrote that were more technique driven and I thought looked beautiful and cool. And like people, like I never heard back anything. <laughs> like, I don't think anyone made this. Okay, well, that's not helpful or useful to people then. So now it's, well, what do people want to make at home? Or what do people love ordering at restaurants that they could make at home for way better? Um, so that's on the content side, things that I've learned or am still learning. Who do you think is your is your audience? If you could describe them, do you think it's like families? Do you think it's young couples? Like what, what would you say? Or is it anyone that's just interested in food? I think um, I could tell you who's not my audience. Okay. Um, pe- so people that would just think like food is fuel. Mm-hmm. that's that's not my audience um a investment banker that works 120 hours a week fair uh that doesn't have time to even cook two nights a week that's not my audience um so i think my audience would be work from home people mm-hmm. um especially now um since there's more work from home um but also either single or dual parent homes that want to um, cost save. Yeah. You can eat better than a restaurant at home. And uh, you know, what's so funny is people will, they'll go drive 20 minutes to a restaurant, sit down, spend an hour in the restaurant and then drive 20 minutes home. And you've spent, you know, almost two hours of time um, where you could have made something in 30 minutes in many cases, or even 45 at a third of the cost mm-hmm. um and so i think people are slowly kind of waking up to that um but also i've seen a lot of um or i've had a lot of feedback from um 20s and 30s guys that are really enthusiastic about cooking mm. which is great to see. um so i mean especially if you're a single guy and you know how to cook uh you're bringing a lot um I think that brings a lot to the table, um, relationally being able to, being able to cook for your, for your girl. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's, uh, I, in my experience, women really appreciate guys that can cook. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I guess, um, that was probably the most surprising one was how much feedback I was getting from guys that were cooking and say, Hey, I cooked this for my, for my girlfriend, or I did this. And I'm like, Oh, that's cool. Right. I think being a foodie is also becoming trendy. I just like, there's some shows that have become really popular, like the bear. I don't know if you're familiar with that one. And (laughs) yeah. And so like, I know a lot of my guy friends actually have like food Instagram accounts and they'll take pictures of what they made for dinner and they'll explain what they did. And like, especially with steaks and more like manly smokers and things like that, like it's becoming a, a trend. So I think that the male foodie demographic is very cool to be to be selling to. Something that my boyfriend and I like to do a lot is try to recreate dishes at restaurants that we really loved and try to figure out like what is in that or can we try to just make something comparable to it? And that's kind of a fun thing to do. It's like a, a science experiment a little bit. Right. And that's, I mean, that's another thing too. I mean, yeah, sometimes you're in a rush, but if you view cooking as a waste of time, or as a low ROI activity, you're never going to enjoy it. And so um, there's just been so much, especially you see it on, on, I think you probably see it on Twitter the most about how like cooking is worthless. Like, you know, and I just, I think that's such a wrong and uh, unenjoyable way to view life. But with the bear, uh, since you mentioned it, that is probably the most realistic, um, that's probably the most realistic depiction of uh like an episode two when he's in the fine dining kitchen mm-hmm. and that guy's like breathing on his neck telling him like what a worthless piece of crap he is and why right. can't like why can't they faster that is 100 percent exactly what it was like oh my god <laughs> that's crazy <laughs> and so it, it i think it breeds a lot of this like maniacal perfectionism which i've already kind of wired into for certain things but uh yeah i watched that and laughed and it was like going down memory lane 
That's awesome. And there's a lot of funny TikToks of like people throwing things in the kitchen being like, yes, chef, yes, chef. Like, <laughs> the whole exactly. culture has created. <laughs> um, so when my boyfriend and I are cooking, we'll be like, yes, chef, yes, chef now because of that show. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think it's fun. And the idea that there's no value to cooking other than the food, like if it's snowing in January on a Saturday, like making a pot roast all day and it's making the house smell good or bread or something like that. Like it's an activity that's a great thing to spend your time doing rather than playing video games or something like that. Like you're creating something. It's much better than a lot of the other pursuits that people do, especially in the winter. Agreed. Uh, it was actually just last night I went and made a huge batch of Seville marmalade for my parents because it's one of their, their favorite preserves and well one of mine too but yeah I think uh I saw Seville oranges which are the the really thick rind kind of bitter oranges um they were on for because it's citrus season so I found them for uh a dollar ninety a pound so I got I think it was six pounds five or six pounds and uh used the whole fruit and some sugar and made preserves that will probably last them three to four months. Um, if you go to the store and buy one jar of marmalade, like English marmalade, legit marmalade, it's going to be eight, $9 for one jar. I made, I think, eight, six to eight quarts for $12. So, so the marmalade that I made is better than the one in the jar it costs a lot less and it's more enjoyable. So, I mean, there's so many instances of that um, with cooking. It doesn't have to be the most important thing in your life, but I mean, there's so many people now that don't even know how to like fry an egg right? or God forbid poach an egg or anything like that. <laughs> and I also think people are like, oh, I can just hire someone to like meal prep or I can just get takeout. I can afford it. You don't feel that great when you eat out all the time. You've said so many times on your Twitter account, like you should really be doing the 80-20 where you eat, we eat in 80% of the time, you go out 20% of the time because they're not using the best oils because God forbid seed oils. Knowing the ingredients that actually went into your food, knowing it's clean, like to be healthy, you really should be making it on your own as well. Um, and like making your own food and eating it when it's high, it's so much better than reheating like meal prepped food for you in the microwave. Yeah, I have not seen a meal plan or like a meal prep plan that even looks appetizing, let alone tastes good. Mm -hmm. So, um, and again, like their market is the food for fuel people, I think. And that's, that's fine. Um, that's not my market at all. Like I want to enjoy what I'm eating. I don't want to like hold my nose and like, I don't know, because at that point, like, you should just, the food for fuel, like, well, why don't you just eat the Matrix porridge, you know, every day? Like, right. <laughs> if, it, if, it, if it had all your nutrients in it, I'm sure, like, people would. Um, but, uh, yeah, and also, like, what you were saying versus going out all the time, I mean, now it's even expensive for most people um, just to get mid-tier food like you were saying earlier that doesn't even really taste that good yeah um i think i saw um three dozen eggs it's like 14 dollars now or something right i want to i mean i think a year ago that pack i saw in the store for like five dollars like the, the egg prices are insane right. um and so if you're if you're going out to eat to a breakfast place i mean omelet prices have to be soaring right now so it's interesting that the egg thing is a huge deal like knock on wood it's not a huge deal where i am do you have any idea why that would be uh probably would be i'm guessing if you're closer to a, a poultry hotspot. Mm, maybe i am i, I couldn't tell you <laughs> but i mean are you talking about the store or from like just friends that you have that have chickens Oh, no, like from the grocery store, there's always eggs and they're like a little bit more expensive, but it's not $16 for three dozen. Or um, so a lot of these grocery stores have um, purveying warehouses. They may have had a, a bulk surplus of inventory that they haven't worked through yet that you you may see the price increase later on. Interesting. Um, on that topic, do you think that there's any other foods or ingredients that will be very difficult to come by? In the years, do you have any alpha on that? I think there's an agenda to make things more expensive that 
certain groups of people don't want us to eat. Mm. So I don't think I don't think necessarily maybe you're gonna have like shortages of stuff. It may just become so unaffordable for most people. I could I could see that happening sooner than actual shortages. But I think you know in COVID, like during COVID, I would go to the grocery store just kind of. It, I mean, not for fun, out of curiosity, <laughs> just to see just to see the stuff that was missing. And I can remember looking down freezer aisles that were like empty and like produce shelves that were like completely cleaned out. And I haven't seen that in the last few months. I mean, there's I see pockets of shelves that are sometimes missing stuff where before I would never see that. But I haven't seen any kind of shortage stuff. And as far as I'm really not in touch as much as I used to be with like the um, with like the livestock commodities markets because I'm mm. not purchasing like mm. whole animals or anything anymore. Um, so I that is a good question though. I could I could put some feelers out for sure. I'm just interested because I see it on Doomsday Twitter a lot. Like I got this meat freezer. They convinced me to buy it, so I keep refilling it. But I wonder if I'll ever need uh, it. Yeah, I mean, so Doomsday. Yeah, I mean, so th- again, that's another like like far extreme and i mean that's fine like you can be prepared i i would say if you're buying whole animals that are processed and you're putting them in your freezer you probably are getting better deal over time right because you're insulating yourself from all of the fluctuations that occur it would take two people a long time to get through a whole cow i would think oh yeah um I just keep seeing from the Ukraine war that the price of fertilizer is astronomically higher. There's natural gas prices are super high, like all these inputs um, that are potentially affecting the food supply. So I was just wondering if there's, you know, anything that you foresee as a problem, but it doesn't really seem like it, at least in the short term. Yeah, I think it would have to be. And, you know, I think it would have to be so catastrophic that um, because with the fertilizer prices and stuff, if our government's sending 10 billion to Ukraine at the drop of a hat, I don't think they're going to hesitate to print some more money to subsidize, you know, more, more farming fertilizer, you know, products. I mean, that's, that's just, that's just off the top of my head. I I mean, if we're sending them tanks, I don't see why they wouldn't cover our own fertilizer here. So that might be a bit too logical though. You gotta be careful. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Awesome. Is there anything else that you you really want to touch on? This has been incredibly insightful. This no, I uh, I'm happy to answer anything or any if I didn't hit on anything in particular. Um, it seems like it's we covered a gamut of things. Uh, some that were definitely off the traditional beaten path of just cooking at home for sure. Yeah, I just think like you have all of the experience regarding not only restaurants, but the cooking at home as well. Like you did the whole fine dining and now you're really delivering it to people. Like you are Gordon Ramsay, <laughs> basically <laughs> in the Gordon flesh. Sanders. So I just, yeah. I've always been um, interested in the restaurant biz just because it seems so glamorous to open up a fancy restaurant and, have really high-end clientele and design a very creative and interesting menu. And, and so I just think that the creativity around the food is so fun. Right. (laughs) And that part is, uh, and, and that, that was my issue was I opened a restaurant to create all of my own food, but the more, the bigger it got, the more people we had to serve, the less I was able to cook and create. And that was, by the time I closed two of them that were both totally different concepts, I was so burnt out. Um, and just being able to cook without wondering, oh, is this guest going to be pissed off or, you know, <laughs> that sounds like such a headache. <laughs> yeah. I just want to yeah. cook. Like, yeah, I totally understand that. But I was actually, uh, I just talked to a, a friend of mine uh, two days ago and he's a, he's a, he's a chef and he, he runs a restaurant and he wanted to open another one. And my first question was, why are you dumb? Like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> um, and, uh, and he said, well, I looked into it and I was really excited. And then he said, man, like, first off, r- real estate, retail, real estate for restaurants is crazy. Right. By the time you triple net and then they want to charge you a percentage rent for any sales over X amount of revenue and your margins are already super low. 
And then they told him, we want you to have $400,000 of just um, set aside capital for reserves. That didn't even count opening the restaurant, building the restaurant. So, I mean, if you want to do it right, not not talking about like New York City or San Francisco where where it's just absolutely crazy, but you'd need at least a million and a half dollars um, to start anything that could uh, that could withstand any sort of exterior pressures because the restaurant business is so cash flow heavy. You're mm-hmm. always having to carry inventory, and so if you lose four days out of your weekend sales, can like catch up with you really fast. Um, so yeah, he's not going to do it, and he's going to just enjoy running his one restaurant and spending time with his family, which is good for him. It checks out. I mean, it makes sense. Exactly. <laughs> a million and a half dollars. And is that for this high-end level of restaurant or the, more the mid-tier ones? How much would those uh, that, cost? That was just going to be a mid-tier um, a mid-tier restaurant. And, you know, the, if in the restaurant business, if you run at 8 to 10% profit, you're doing really well. So just do the math. No room for error. You have to do just to skim eight to ten percent in profit. Oi. So what it's do you crazy. think the like eleven Madison Park? How much do you think it costs to run that place? I wouldn't even be able to give a. So a lot of those places. Um, and you're seeing this now uh, where you're having high-end hotels bring in these just amazingly talented chefs because for so long hotel restaurants were like oh just these are shitty right and they suck um but now hotels have always viewed restaurants as loss leaders it's an amenity so it doesn't Mm. have to make money so what they're doing is they're bringing these awesome chefs and they're actually able to create so much more revenue that even if it's at break even or at a lesser percentage they're bringing in more of a gross Mm. it's win-win for everyone and then the benefit for the chef is the hotel manages all of the labor all of the hr i just go in and cook and source and and uh like submit a budget to them every quarter so i know there's the something that is very interesting to me is like the sushi chef where you walk into the restaurant and you don't get to order anything off the menu. The, the chef decides what is on the menu for the day and he he cuts it in front of you or something like that. That model's crazy. Yeah. So fun. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's one of my favorite eating experiences is the the omakase. And um, yeah, I mean, you can run the gamut from, you know, um, moderately expensive to insanely expensive on those experiences depending on who the sushi master is and um you know obviously the level of product there's this whole i kind of laugh too about when people talk about fresh fish because there's this whole sub niche um in the seafood and especially the sushi world where uh guys are like dry aging fish it's really cool um to see these guys messing around with different like humidities and temperatures and they're actually dry aging the fish so the fish is losing moisture but it's in it's intensifying its natural flavor which is mm. super cool um um but yeah it was just a random thought no yeah you said i so my question with that is the fish if really really high quality fish very expensive the labor on cutting and the perfect cuts of the sushi very expensive but not a whole lot of other ingredients so I'm I'm interested to see like how is the um the profit margin on that any higher or is the chef the labor of the cut so insane that it's it's still not very high. Well, normally there's only you know in a lot of in a lot of times there's only two or three people there, but then if you do the math and you can only serve twenty people a night max, you're kind of you're you're limited on on how much revenue you can actually bring in on mm-hmm. the you know at the top. I just noticed that as well, that as I've been eating out more in the city, they they don't push you, but the food comes out really fast because they want to turn the table faster. Turn and burn, especially at the mid-tiers. Mm-hmm. You sit down and they want the yeah. whole, like, every the appetizers, everything that you're going to order, and they bring it out very quickly, which is nice. I mean, you get your food fast, but I definitely feel that. Um, 
Well, so you said you said you're a, you said you're a baker. Oh, I do like to bake. Yeah. Okay. So you're more of a baker than a savory cook. I mean, I have like my go-to recipes that I really like, but I let my my boyfriend handle the meat more. I don't I'm not good at it and um it freaks me out a little bit. <laughs> like super rare steak, so it's better if he cooks it. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. So are you into like bread baking or into like like cakes and pies and I make a damn good brown butter carrot cake, which really is just a vessel for homemade cream cheese frosting. That's one of my favorites. Frosting. I made lots of chocolate pie um apple crumble like key lime pie all those kinds of things my dad whenever i come home my dad is like okay where's my oreo pie <laughs> so it's just relaxing to me maybe we should do a commoner takeover oh that'd be so fun Ooh, good yeah idea. send me send me a list of your face and, and we can we can get you on the sub for a guest spot oh my gosh recipe. so fun okay i'll totally do that my recipe is just think about it that would be a fun one yeah. Plus, we could do that. We could do that in spring too, because carrot cake's not like too rich or anything. Right, right, right. Um, okay, absolutely. Right, chocolate pie. So I do a chocolate pecan pie, and then I also do this like Oreo chocolate mousse pie, which is like folding the the heavy whipping cream into like dark chocolate melted. You whisk some mm -hmm. eggs in there. Um, that's my dad's favorite for sure. I can't have more than one piece of that though. It's so rich. Yeah. You're the only person I've ever heard mention chocolate pecan pie. My mom makes those every year since I was a kid. It's so good. I've never heard anyone else. They always either mention pecan pie or bourbon pecan, but never I've never heard chocolate pecan. Have you ever heard of something called pastel, which not like the Spanish word for bake uh for a dessert, but it's like an Argentinian dish? I don't think so. So it's my boyfriend's family recipe and it's ground beef with cumin and raisins and mashed potatoes. Oh like picadillo yeah i think so and like um there's hard-boiled eggs in it and you put brown sugar on top and olives it's it's next level so that's my one of my favorites do they ever do they ever put that in empanada i don't know if they've ever done that it sounds really similar to uh picadillo which i love my dad loves cuban food so flan and picadillo and boliche and yeah oh my gosh okay so good <laughs> lunchtime right lunchtime <laughs> awesome well thank you so so much for coming on i think this is truly top three favorite episodes this was so insightful and you're just a pleasure talking to you so thank you so much thanks commoner i appreciate the invite and uh yeah maybe we can do one again later on down the road absolutely so for anyone listening are there any links you want to direct them to anywhere that they can find you obviously your twitter but anywhere else uh twitter is going to be the best spot because it's got my um my e-commerce store which is octopodculinary.com the twitter profile also has my Substack, which is bowtiedoctopod.substack.com. Awesome. Everybody go find your stuff. I know you're feeling hungry, so make yourself some dinner tonight. And thanks again. Thank you so much for listening. This has been yet another episode of Common Sense. If you liked the conversation, please consider hitting that follow button on Spotify. Oh, and tell everyone you've ever met to do the same. And while you're feeling generous, why not subscribe to my YouTube channel? I promise I've ridiculed at least one of the identity groups you dislike. You have a great day now.